we're wrapping up a series, and this is, we've been going through a, a book of the Old Testament. It's the fourth book of the Old Testament. It's from what we call the books of Moses. So you get Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And it's a big book. We couldn't cover all of it this summer, so we've just been trying to take some kind of representative passages to, to get, a, get a feel for it, maybe expose you to some parts of the Bible you've never seen before. So we're going to come to an end here on Numbers in chapter 27. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow there. Numbers chapter 27. Before I read it, you, you may have read Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, or maybe you've seen a film adaptation. There's more than one. But one of the storylines in Pride and Prejudice is that you've, you've got this family, really, that the, the story is centered around a mom and dad and their five daughters. And they never had a son, so it's just five daughters. And under English law at that time, the estate, the property that's been in their family will be entailed to the closest male descendant or relative, which is none of them. And so that's, that's one of the, the storylines. And it's made me wonder if Jane Austen, and I wouldn't be surprised because there used to be a good bit more biblical literacy than there is now, if she had read this story because that same situation is in our text this morning with one big difference. The father has already died. The father has already died. You've got five daughters, no brother. And we're coming to the end of the book of Numbers, so just so that everybody's caught up. Forty years in the wilderness, they're now really into their 40th year. They are about to cross the Jordan River and go in and begin conquering the promised land. So that's where they are, and that's where this takes place. One other thing, um, you're going to get a lot of names thrown at you at the beginning, which tries scripture readers like, like myself right now. But try to remember these names. You've got the big famous Old Testament names, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Twelve sons that the twelve tribes of Israel come from. One of his sons is named Joseph, and a good chunk of Genesis is about Joseph. There's no tribe of Joseph. Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so you had the half-tribe of Ephraim and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So when you get this big batch of names at the beginning, you're going to hear that these are descendants of Joseph and they're in the half-tribe of Manasseh. And you're going to meet these daughters. All right? Numbers 27, beginning in verse 1. Then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. The names of his daughters were Malah, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar, the priest, and before the chiefs and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, saying... Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died for his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Moses brought their case before the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, The daughters of Zelophehad are right. 
You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. And you shall speak to the people of Israel saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan, and he shall possess it. And it shall be for the people of Israel a statute and and rule as the Lord commanded Moses. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for the law and the prophets the history books, the wisdom books, the psalms, and the gospels, the letters, every part of this, of this Bible. Father, thank you for the times we've had this summer to enter into this book of, of numbers, this book of in the wilderness, and to meditate together. And we pray again that you, you would enable us to hear you. It's hard for us to hear you. It's not because you haven't been clear, it's because of us. But you're very kind, you're very merciful, so help us. And help us to heed what you're saying. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. About a month ago, I was was in a training time with a a group of people. It was a small group exercise. And this was actually in another state. wasn't here, no one in Greenville, no one from downtown Prez. There were eight of us in this small group in this exercise, and there was a facilitator leading this, this group exercise. One of the members of the group was a woman in a pretty high-achieving professional. She was in an organization. She did HR on the flow chart. She had like 6,000 people under her, so a lot on her, and a mom, uh, and a wife, taking care. She's the main caregiver for an ailing uh, parent, and just on and on and on. So she, she was talking... She's really been candid about how hard this is and just how much is coming at her. So the, the facilitator of this small group that I was in said, okay, I want you to sit in a chair, and I want the rest of you to stand around her. So we got up and we stood around her. And this facilitator assigned different roles to us, like you're her job. You are her parent who needs her. Uh, you are the kids. You just All, all these roles in her life. Now, begin talking to her about what she needs to do. So you had the person who's the kid saying, Mom, we need you. We need you to pick us up. We need you to take us places. We need On and on and on. Uh, the job was saying, look, you, you've, you've got to be there. You've got, you've got to always be available. You've got to always be accessible by text or email. You've... So we started doing that. And then after a while, the facilitator he gave it like an upward nudge, like bring the volume up. So the voices got louder. Mom, we need you. Mom, you need to pick us up. Mom, you need to do this. We need you at work. You need to be the first one there. You need to be the last one to get. Room got louder and louder and louder. And then the facilitator said, okay, stop. And he looked at her and said, that's your head. It's really powerful, you know. And I was going to say a powerful visual. It was an audio visual. And I think most everybody in this room at some level can relate to that. It gets loud after a while. All right, I want to, I want to sort of lead you in an exercise. And I want you to mentally picture yourself in a chair. And I want to picture 
you, you, you assign whatever person, people walking up to you, and instead of telling you what you need to do, so not responsibilities, they're coming to you and they're making promises. Right? So let's say a really, really striking, beautiful woman is walking up. And whether you're male or female, she's saying to you in the chair, if you look like the people in the pictures, you will be happy. If you look like the people in the pictures, you will be happy. Let's say you're a parent. Um, If you're a parent, I want you to picture somebody, somebody who's really accomplished. They're walking up and saying, if your kids get in a good school, they will be okay. If your kids get in a good school, they will be okay. Picture somebody that looks affluent. Like lives in the kind of place that we'd like to live. And he's walking up to you, she's walking up to you, and they're saying this If you have $100,000 more money, most of your problems will stop. If you have $100,000 more, most of your problems will stop. And the room is getting louder and louder and louder and louder. Okay, now I want you to picture, kind of from the back, Jesus saying this Little flock. It's pleased your Father to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make for yourselves treasures in heaven where money bags don't wear out. Now, this almost sounds blasphemous to say this. Doesn't that almost sound in that room like pretend? That's our heads. And the interesting thing is, the people of God, really from the get-go have been told you must live by promises. God promises you things that you can't see yet and they haven't happened yet. You must live in the light of those promises. And so I think sometimes we hear that as, wow, I need to be a person who learns how to live by promises. We live by promises all the time. We are living by promises every minute. If you get the home you want, you will be happy inside of it. If you get your body to look this way, you will be liked. Promises. As I've said week after week, but we have new people every week, the original title of this book is not Numbers. The original title of this book is, the Hebrew title, is In the Wilderness. This is the Israelites in between leaving Egypt in slavery and before they cross the Jordan River into the promised land. They are in the wilderness. And at this point, it's the end of the wilderness time. This is the second generation. Uh, These were the babies that the grown-ups said, you brought us out in the wilderness and our children will die. They have died off. And the babies are now the grown-ups about to go into the promised land. But they're in the wilderness. And kind of out of left field, really out of left field, this group of women comes and they've been surrounded by doubt, complaining, grumbling, overt rebellion. Out of left field, this group of women comes and says, okay, so when the land is divvied out, like they're already speaking like, okay, so when God does accomplish this thing he's going to do, when people have not been talking that way, what are we seeing here? And the hope is, I, I want to see the, the lowercase s story. And when I say story, I don't mean fiction. I mean account. 
There's like a little S story here, and there's a big capital S story. That's the story of Scripture. So let's look at this in terms of these daughters. Let's think about the daughter's context and the daughter's provider. All right? The daughter's context and the daughter's provider. Context, you know, think about a couple of things. Think about their background, or we might say their, their lineage, but also think about their surroundings as, as this is happening. All right, this is review. What's their lineage? They are direct descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We call them the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Twelve sons. One of them is Joseph. Joseph has these two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So you have the half-tribe of Ephraim, the half-tribe of Manasseh. What were the promises made to their aunt? I tried to work this out. Sometimes in Bible genealogies, they leave names out. And that was, uh, that was standard convention back then. But if I've got it right, the, the, these sisters are the great, 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 great granddaughters of Abraham. When God came to... When, I hope that impressed you, the preparation it took this week. There were flow charts. There were sticky notes on the wall. The promise that God came and made to Abraham, really out of the blue, for, based on nothing he had done, God makes multiple promises to Abraham, but a big one is the land. I'm going to give you this land. Like, look at this land. I'm going to give it to you. And don't picture Abraham standing there looking at sort of big, open, like, you know, kind of the West in the United States before it was settled. That's not, he's looking at settled, inhabited Canaanite areas with villages and cities and militaries. And God says, that's going, and when he says this, Abraham has no children, zero children. To your descendants, so one of the promises is all these descendants, I'm going to give all that land. And he reaffirms it to Isaac. And he reaffirms it to Jacob. And Joseph knew the promises. That was the lineage of these daughters. Okay? Um, What are their surroundings? Now, I I just, I wanted to hear this one last time. We've been talking about wilderness, wilderness. Look, Look in the bulletin. This is in italics after our passage. Just a couple of quotes from, one is from the law, one's from the prophets. These are just passing mentions about the wilderness. What was it like? What was this place like where the Israelites lived? Deuteronomy 8.15, the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. Painful. Try your patience. Frighten you. Make you wonder if your kids are going to be okay. Jeremiah 2.6, kind of picking up mid-sentence here, but it refers to, quote, in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. And they were there 40 years. And besides that, I mentioned this a little while ago, It's not just that that's the physical surrounding, but what else has surrounded them? An entire culture of complaint and grumbling and rebellion and disobedience. 
mean, for 40 years, the only thing that these sisters have known is that. They've only known a nomadic life in an incredibly harsh environment. And all their ancestors could remember was slavery. That's their context. And from that context, out of the blue, when everybody around them has shown their ability to complain and grumble and not believe, they sort of step up and go, okay, so when we conquer the Canaanites and the land is divvied out, this passage is, the more I sat with this, and I hope this is happening to you, it should make us go, how did you do that? Because there's no record of anyone else doing that. How did you do that? Let me give you one from, uh, from church history. Now, this is not a household name, but I love the story. There was a Scottish missionary named Robert Moffat. And if we had all the cool audiovisual stuff, I'd have to show you a picture of him. Because, like, did you see Dead Poets Society? There's this famous scene in, in Dead Poets Society where uh, Robin Williams' uh, character, Keating, is that right? He, there's a picture up on the wall of Walt Whitman. And he gets a guy to just start poetically describing Walt Whitman. He says he looks like a sweaty-toothed madman, you know, like just like big hair and giant beard and everything. That's what Robert Moffat looked like. So he goes to South Africa, to the Cape, in 1817. And two years later, uh, this younger woman that he had developed a relationship with came and married him, and they co-labored together in 1819. All right. In 1829... Now think about being in another country and you haven't seen any people become Christians. And you're like, we have missionaries that go to very urban places, very sophisticated areas. Dan Dillard was just talking about being in a university city in Spain. But when you think about missions like savages and headhunters and warriors, like that's who Robert Moffat was working with. Twelve years, no one's becoming a Christian. In 1829... All of a sudden, there start to be these little drops of conversions. And they start talking to people, and they start seeing this change in the tribe, and people begin becoming Christians. And so, at the very first worship service, where people were baptized and admitted into the new church, after that, they had communion. What did they have communion with? They had communion with a communion set from Sheffield, England. And it got there the Friday before this service. Robert Moffat's wife ordered it two years earlier. Because her thinking was, no one's a Christian at that point. Her thinking was, well, when people start becoming Christians, we need a communion set. It took two years to get there. And it got there the Friday before they were baptized and took their first communion. You look at that and you go, how did you do that? It's hard for me to live by faith for a week. And the tendency is to, to look at a Mary Moffat, that was her name, or to look at the, da- the daughters of Zelophehad and say, well, I tell you, they were special ladies, weren't they? Kind of like it's just DNA or something, like they're seven feet tall. Wow, you're really tall, aren't you? But they were just born that way. Is that how the Bible reads? And this is where I'm really, I'm I'm having to draw not only from numbers, but really from the whole of Scripture. 
So let's think about the daughter's provider. And several things that he's providing here. Let, let me do three. I'm talking about God. It's the provider. Provides faith. Provides justice. And he provides inheritance. He provides faith. He provides justice. He provides inheritance. You know, I've, I've quoted this to you before. I got this from somebody else. Named Steve Brown. He said... If you see a turtle on a fence post, you probably figure he didn't get up there by himself. And that was Steve Brown's way of saying, when you see a person who's descended from Adam, the Bible says, shows up dead in our trespasses and sins, and just naturally is hardwired to live by sight and not by faith. When you see a man or woman like that, and all of a sudden they believe, And they live by faith, not by sight. That's a turtle on a fence post. It means that person was acted upon. How did Mary Moffat do that? When the signals were, this is a failure. No one here is going to become a Christian. Sorry. Go back to Scotland. The daughters of Zelophehad. When this land comes to our tribe, what about us? Not if. Here's the amazing thing that the Bible says, and it's a both and. God requires us to have faith, and God gives us the faith he requires. If if we'll hear that, that can be incredibly encouraging. God doesn't say jump through this hoop, or obey enough, or go on this pilgrimage. He says, take me at my word And believe, that's called faith. And I'm going to give you the faith that I require of you. Now, I'm going to say this again before we're done, but I I just, I'm going to pop if I don't say it now. Whether you're somebody who's never had faith, you've never been a believer in God and Jesus, or you have been one, but you struggle with unbelief all the time, where will you get faith? Will you manufacture it? Because I think for most of us, we respond that the answer is yes. I will conjure it up. And God in his word says, I will give you the thing you need. God provides faith. God provides justice. Let me show you something. Look in verse 5. It says that when, when these sisters... It's really great. They, they, they went through what we would call the proper channels instead of just grumble and start a new rebellion... They go to Moses. They go to the the entrance to the tabernacle, sort of the right way to do it, and say, here's our situation. So, verse 5, Moses brought their case before the Lord. Now, the word, the Hebrew word that we translate case is just sort of the all-encompassing Hebrew word for justice, mishpat. And it says it again in verse 11. It says that it shall be for the people of Israel a statute and a rule... This is going to be the just, just way to do things as the Lord commanded Moses. And this is really interesting. Uh, apparently, it wasn't unheard of to give women, daughters, property. Apparently, that was already done in areas of Mesopotamia. But there was question about it in Israelite practice. One commentary that I looked at, uh, at on this passage really sort of made the whole passage about women's rights and women's advocacy. Women's advocacy is great. 
I mean, it is the Bible that in the very first chapter says, males and females, men and women, equally bear the image of God. Yes. But the thing is, the passage goes on to say, there needs to be justice for the whole community. It's not just, what do you do if there's no son? What do you do if there's no son or daughters? What do you do if there's no son or daughters or brother of the parents? Just, I want there to be justice. I want people to receive their due. This is a big deal in the Bible. That God is the God of justice. And that he wants his people to do justice and to seek justice. That the Messiah, in more than one place, is described as the one who will execute justice and righteousness. And I find, and I'm being descriptive, I'm not, this is not scolding, I'm just being descriptive. I find that when I stand before our demographic and I talk about justice, most of the room kind of checks out. Because usually our demographic gets justice if it wants justice. But maybe 10% of you have really experienced getting the shaft. And you, tr- you tried to use whatever recourse you had. You tried, you tried to use whatever resources you had. And you, you did not get justice. And it might have been in your work. It might have that you got financially messed over. It could be medical. It could be in your family. And on and on and on. But it's maddening to get injustice. God cares about it. We'll come back to that in a second. He gives these women faith. He gives these women justice. But he, kind of the big, the big thing, he gives the women an inheritance. But he gives all the Israelites an inheritance. Now, this is the story with the capital S. Why does God give the Israelites an inheritance? It must be because of their sterling character and their impeccable obedience. Don't you think? Listen to this. This is, a, this is from the next book, Deuteronomy. This is when Moses does a giant recap. Like, what have we learned here? What have we seen and what do we need to know before you go across that river? I'm not going, but what do you need to know? Listen to this. I love the word disabuse. If, uh, if any of the Israelites thought, yep, we're going over there because we're better. This would disabuse that person in this moment. Um, Moses says, Deuteronomy 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. What a pep talk. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. All right, if, that's, if it's not righteousness, then why are the Israelites being given an inheritance of this land? This is from Deuteronomy 7. Please listen to this part. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and he's keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That almost doesn't make sense. Because what did, God just, what, what did Moses just say about God? He doesn't love you 
because you're more in number or strong or important, but it's because he loves you. He doesn't love you because of what you did or your importance. He loves you because he loves you. That's very important. He set his love on you, and he keeps his word that he swore to your forefathers. What about the people of God now? Um, God promises justice. Jesus said on one occasion, look, he tells a story about a woman who just pesters a judge, pesters a judge, give me justice, give me justice. And, and Jesus says, this is not a good judge. He was not like a guy with really great character, but he finally says, just to get this woman off my case, I'll give her justice. And Jesus says, hey, if the unjust judge will give justice, how much more will my father give to the elect justice who cry out to him day and night? But you know what? Some believers in God, some believers in Jesus, they die. And they did not get justice in this life. What about them? Because that may be you. You might cry out, God, fix this. I'm not asking for $2 million of punitive damages. I just want what's fair and you don't get it. What are we to think of that? You know what the biblical answer is? There will be justice. It's an unseen promise about the unseen future. And what does that do to us? That's all well and good, but I want it now. And God might say, no, you must wait then how do I know it's going to happen? And that's the importance of this thing called the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When the people got close to the promised land, Moses sent in some sort of recon spy guys, and they cut a big cluster of fruit, of grapes from the valley of Eshcol, and uh, so heavy they had to put it on a pole and they carried it back to the Israelites and showed it to them. And those were, were regarded as first fruits. You don't live there yet. We haven't entered there yet. We haven't conquered there yet. But have the first fruits is sort of a down payment. And Paul, the Apostle Paul takes that image and applies it to the resurrection of Jesus. Because I'm telling you, it's so hard to live by faith. We're so hungry for a visual. God in his kindness essentially says this. Okay, if you want to believe that I'll really raise you from the dead. That I'll really raise you, body and soul, to newness of life. And that you will enter heaven and live directly in my presence. If you want to know that's really true, I'm going to give you the first fruits. It's the resurrection publicly, visibly, of my own son. Of my own son. How can I know that God will provide me justice that he promises? The resurrection. The first fruits. 
how do I know that this has a happy ending? I'm so tired. I'm so worn out. I'm so discouraged. I'm discouraged by me. I'm discouraged by the church. I'm discouraged by the news. And it grinds on me. How can I know that there will be a happy ending? I get it that the Bible says it. How do I know he'll do what he promises the resurrection? Is God broadcasting to the world, I will keep my promises. What if I struggle to believe that? Well, join the club, number one. You're in the right place. And number two, do you ever ask him for faith? I know we ask him to make me feel better, make the problems go away, close the loops, take away the source of suffering, make me feel better. But do we ever say, God, give me strong faith? I'm tired of just living by sight. It comes naturally to me and it wears me out. I want to live by faith. Have you ever asked him to give you strong faith? Ask him to give you strong faith. Do you ever wonder if deep down, not just you, but maybe us, that we really don't believe lots of people can become new Christians? And so we live accordingly. That you've got the scripture saying, it's the power of God, this gospel, to save anybody. And God's word will not return to him void, but that deep down we don't really think it's real. Do you need faith? Let's ask our great God to give us faith. He is the great provider and Savior. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, it seems that often as we, as we come to your word and then we, we pray to you that what we're saying is that we live by sight and we don't live by faith. And, and we are saying it to you again. Help us in our unbelief. Provide us the faith we need. Give us the justice that we need, either in this life or in the life to come. Give us faith that our inheritance awaits us, one that we don't deserve, but Jesus deserves. That we will be co-heirs with him if we will trust you. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.